In our Bibles to John chapter 3. Taking a little detour from the Old Testament to go through the Gospel of John. It's a great book. I'm enjoying studying it immensely. John chapter 3, there is an encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the leaders of the Jews and, and a Pharisee. The Pharisees were people who were very concerned about their public image. They were also really concerned about their level of holiness and righteousness. And, and that was a good thing as far as it went. They had a zeal for God, but their zeal for God was without knowledge. Paul described himself as being that way. Paul was a Pharisee as well. So here Nicodemus is showing privately as he comes by night to ask Jesus some questions. The, the Pharisees had a lot of encounters with Jesus. Usually it ended up with him making them look stupid. It started out with them trying to make him look stupid. And anytime you set out to make God look dumb, it always backfires on you. But Pharisees, were all, they thought they were cocky and smart, and so they were picking fights with Jesus quite often. Because what he was teaching about the law was a lot different than what they believed. Jesus was teaching that righteousness would come only by relationship and grace. They were believing that if you did enough good things, you'd become righteous on your own. Paul said, as far as he himself, that if it, when it came to the law, he was actually blameless. Their version of the law, their interpretation of the law, he was following it perfectly. Um, and yet, it doesn't matter how good you are, you come short of the glory of God. And so, this Pharisee, Nicodemus, who in the daytime was very self-assured and people looked up to him as being a, a great leader and teacher, he, deep down inside he knew there was something missing. There was something else he was looking for because a, a legal relationship with God, a relationship with God that's just based on how good you are, will always leave you short. I'm convinced that a lot of times it's why after we walk with the Lord for a while, we begin to experience a real dryness and an emptiness. Because we start out with the Lord realizing that we're a mess, that it all comes down to Him, that it's His grace, and we just receive His forgiveness. And boy, we understand this is a great, this is a great deal. I give myself to Him, and He makes me righteous. He he cleans me up. He forgives my sins. And, and it's nothing that I did nor anything that I could do that really affects it. It's just His grace. So we begin to enjoy that, but over time, we start to get better. Some of those old things of the flesh and those old habits and desires, well, God just takes them away. Not through our trying to get rid of them even sometimes. Our desires just change. And those things that we once struggled with, now don't seem to be a temptation at all. God starts helping us. So, you know, before I was a Christian where maybe um, smoking pot was something that was very desirable, over time, God just took that away. Today, you could put a lid in front of me, you could give me a joint, and I'm not like feeling, oh, I'd love to do it. Now, a piece of chocolate cake, yeah. <laughs> but a joint, it's... The Lord's just taken that away. I don't want it anymore. But see, as God does that in our lives, and He picks different areas for different people. I, you know, there are some people who, I know for me, I, I quit wanting to smoke, period. Right after I became a Christian, it was just, He took it away, and I had been doing it for a long time. Yet, I know other people who struggle with that habit for 25, 30 years as a believer. 
It's not that I'm better than somebody else. It's that we have so much wrong with us that God tends to work through one thing at a time. So if, you, if you're having a hard time with smoking, it's just that God's working in other areas. And, and so he does this. But as he does it, we begin to notice a change. We could l make a list of the things that we've experienced victory over, not by our own effort, but by his. However, as we look at that list and that list begins to get longer, just because we've walked with the Lord longer, we, start to, we have this tendency to start to think that we're better than other people. And we turn Christianity from being a relationship of grace into a, a, a life of rules and regulations, of human righteousness. Paul told the Galatians, warned them, he said, having begun in the Spirit, will you be made perfect in the flesh? Well, that's what we have a tendency to do if we don't fight against it. I'm convinced it's one reason why God brings people into your path, into my path, who are still struggling with things that we've had victory over. And sometimes those are the people that we are the least sympathetic of. And yet what God's reminding us is, remember who you were. Remember what I saved you from. He has to keep drumming this through into our heads so that we'll continue to understand that it's a relationship. But I think if we're not careful, we all become Pharisees. We all become people who think we're better than everyone else because we don't do the things that they do. Now, if you're trying to jump off the end of the Huntington Beach Pier and land on the dock in Catalina in Avalon Harbor, I don't care if you're somebody who can't jump a foot or if you're someone who can broad jump 20 feet, we're all going to end up in the water. And really, actually... The person who just barely flops off the end of the pier might be in better shape because it's easier to rescue them. The person who jumps further out into the Pacific, it'll take a little work to drag them back in. And that's the way our righteousness is. It just doesn't amount to anything. Comparing ourselves among ourselves does nothing. It's realizing none of us can jump to Catalina. That's the thing that we need to remind ourselves of constantly. The Pharisees were better than the average people, and so they thought they were good. And yet, again, deep down inside, when you act like you're good, when you think you're good, the truth is when you're laying in bed at night and nobody's reading your mind, you realize there's something missing. When we're living according to the flesh, when we're living by our own righteousness, we'll know something's missing. And I think for every one of us, there's something missing in some area of our lives. It's what should keep us coming back to Him. But if you get slick enough, you can just convince yourself that it doesn't matter. You can shut your mind off to the fact that I still need God. I still have a hunger and a thirst for Him. And you can get pretty professional at living the Christian life. But deep down inside, you know, you've been acting like you've got it all together, but you don't, I don't. We're all... We're all just sinners. We're saved by grace. Our sin's taken care of, but at the same time, we all need him on a daily basis. So this is Nicodemus, and he came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He doesn't know how to open the conversation. The truth is he wants to know how to have what Jesus has. He knows Jesus has something he doesn't have. So he starts out by saying, you know, we know you're a teacher from God. 
Now, Nicodemus himself was a teacher, but he realized there was something different about Jesus. And the best way he could describe it is, I've seen the miracles that you do. I can't do those miracles. I can't accomplish what you accomplish. And so this is his introductory line, and Jesus comes back by saying something interesting to him. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What a weird response. Now, remember, we've heard the term born again. Not only the term born again Christian, but, you know, we hear on a daily basis corporations that are born again, fads that are born again, bands that are born again. Everything's born again nowadays. It's a, it's a term that I think we've just about lost the significance of as Christians because it's been so overused that it's kind of a, a brand of Christian. If you say, I'm a born-again Christian, we mean, well, that means we're Protestants, but probably not really the stiff denominational type. We're definitely not Catholics. We're not Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. Our niche is kind of in the middle there in the born-again-ism. Jesus, nobody had ever said born-again before. He just brought this up out of the blue, and to Nicodemus, it sounded really funny, and of course, he responds by saying, you know, I don't know if I could fit back in my mother's womb, and I'm sure she wouldn't go for it if I could. I, I don't know what you're talking about. It's interesting how Jesus, when he talked to people, he often hit them with something that really shocked them, or that made them laugh, or that really got their attention. He, Jesus didn't speak in little platitudes and, and things that everyone was used to hearing. He, he liked to shake people up, and that's what he did. Now, it's interesting that Jesus here in John 3 talks about being born again. And we've taken that and made it central to our way to communicate Christianity to people. And yet, we don't see in the rest of the Gospels, Jesus never again tells someone that they need to be born again. Uh, we never see Paul telling people to be born again. Peter in 1 Peter kind of alludes to a new birth, but doesn't use quite that terminology. Um, Jesus was speaking with a powerful and radical metaphor, and we have turned it into a trite saying. And I believe that Jesus would appreciate if we do communicate a relationship with God in ways that make that kind of a connection and sometimes even shocking. If we boil our presentation of the gospel down to just a, a pat thing, like, okay, here's how Jesus said it to Nicodemus, so that's how we need to say it to other people. We miss opportunities to present it in a way that's truly creative and that may connect on a different way in a different aspect. And so I think it's important that we realize Jesus here was saying something pretty radical, and he never said it again quite this way, though he preached the gospel many times. Paul preached the gospel many times, but never quite phrased it this way. So I think if we just get locked on to one little approach to the gospel, we might be missing an opportunity to present it truly with the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us. It's a problem that I have with with so many presentations of the gospel that are boiled down to an approach or to a few steps or a few laws, you don't ever see that happening in the scriptures because the gospel is something that's true and it's huge, but it's to be presented in a way that we need to be listening to God as to how to present it. When we boil it down to just a little system, 
I think it becomes something less than what it really is. But Jesus is about to share with Nicodemus the good news, but he gets his attention by saying, you need to be born again. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus begins to explain it, but it's still difficult to understand, you must confess. In fact, people still argue about verse 5. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? There are several different views theologically. There, there are some people who, well, there are two major views, I think. One of them is that water is a reference to water baptism. And the being born of the Spirit is to spirit baptism, or depending on your theological bent, uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that happens at salvation. People who take this view um, generally, or a lot of them anyway, believe that in baptismal regeneration, that is that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Can't be saved without being baptized. That's a wrong position, but it's a... If, it, if this is what it means, baptism, it's, you know, then he would be saying, if you're born of water and the Spirit, he would be saying, you need that outward work of God at conversion, and you need the inward work of the Spirit that happens at conversion as well. I tend to side with other people who say that being born of water is referring to that physical birth, and being born of the Spirit is being born again by the Spirit of God. Um, you know when you're born, well, before you're born, you're in a sack of water, and when the water breaks, it's about time for you to be born. And those of you who have had the dubious pleasure of watching that event happen um, realize that it's kind of messy, but to be born of water might be one way of putting it. Now, the people who don't believe this is referring to physical birth would say, why would he say you have to be born of water? That's kind of obvious. Of course, you need to be born physically before you can be born spiritually. And so they would see and hear something that's um, a little troubling, and I, and I understand that. The reason that I think it's referring to physical birth and spiritual birth is because as you read on, when he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he's basically saying you need to be born twice. Not that anyone could ever be born spiritually and not be born physically, but again, the fact that he follows up by saying that which is born of the flesh is flesh, he's using physical birth as an analogy to that spiritual birth that we all need to experience, that, that moving of God in our lives, that placing his spirit, breathing on us and allowing his spirit to come into us, that's a spiritual birth. And so what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is you can't, get it until you've been born spiritually. You've been born physically, but you need to go through an experience that's as radically different as that. It's starting all over because when you were born as a human, it gave you all of those tendencies to relate to others. It gave you those opportunities to become everything that a human is, but unfortunately, one of the things that humans are is lost, is, is they fail. 
they make the wrong decisions. And so he's saying, you've been through that birth, but spiritually you need a new work of, of God in your life. So he says, don't freak out that I said you've got to be born again. It's a different kind of birth. It's a, it's a spiritual birth. Before we accept Jesus Christ, we're spiritually dead, and the Bible says that we can't even comprehend the things of God because we don't have the Spirit of God working in our spirit to enable us to do that. And so, like Paul in 1 Corinthians says that the natural man can't understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. And it's just true. Until you give your life to Jesus Christ, there are certain things you're just not going to understand. Now, after you become a Christian, there are still things that you don't understand, things that you can't understand. But before you're a Christian, there's just no way. The Holy Spirit's not inside you, and so it just doesn't click. Every one of us, when we came to Jesus Christ, it was when things just started to click. The Spirit, the Bible says, was drawing us convicting us of our sin and drawing us. And it was like we saw light coming through a crack in a door and we said, that's what I need. And we enter that door, the Spirit of God begins to work in our lives in a, in a different sort of way, opening our hearts and our minds up into things that we couldn't have ever comprehended before. And that's what the Spirit does when we're born of the Spirit. Now, to illustrate it, he goes to another metaphor and it's an interesting one because the word wind is the same word. In, the, in Greek and Hebrew, the same word as spirit. And so the wind is often used as a metaphor for the spirit. And he says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. What he's saying is, you don't see the wind but you know it's there. We don't completely understand why the wind blows as it does when it does. The light kind of wind that he's talking about. Oh, maybe scientifically we can fully understand when a Santa Ana wind is coming and we know the forces that do that, but that little breeze that just comes along and moves the tree a little bit, we don't understand it. We hardly think about it. We can't see it, but we know what it brings into our lives. Just that that fresh breeze. I, I personally would hate to live somewhere where there's never any wind, never a breeze. It's just so refreshing. A little breeze blows along and oh man, it's, it does something and you know it's there and you appreciate it. And he's saying that's the way the Spirit is. It's not that the Spirit comes in, it's not like a tidal wave. The Spirit doesn't come in and just grab you and shake you and spin you and throw you. You, you may not even remember when the Spirit started working in your life. And people may talk about the Spirit, and you may go, I don't know. I mean, there are often people who are just wondering whether they have the Spirit or not. But what he's saying is that's the way the Spirit is. He just comes in and refreshes you and, and goes through your life, and you don't actually see it, but you know what we're talking about when I describe it to you. You've, you've experienced that work of the Spirit in your life, that, that sense of, He's there, and he's working, and things are different, and so that's what he's telling Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was just blown away by it. How can these things be? And Jesus said, are you a teacher of Israel, and you don't know this stuff? This is really basic. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you don't receive our witness. He said, I've been out there preaching, and I know what I'm talking about, but you haven't been listening. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, 
How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? It starts by opening your mind up to the most basic things that God tells us here and now. If you can't believe the earthly things, believing that God sent His Son Jesus to come to this earth and to die and to rise from the dead and to ascend into heaven, if you can't handle something that basic, you're never going to understand about the Spirit. You're never going to have those deeper insights into the Spirit. And he says, not only do I know what I'm talking about, he says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, here's another verse that people have written volumes on. No one has ascended to heaven. Now, at this point, Jesus hadn't ascended to heaven yet. Now, there are people who teach that Jesus was a man, and God came and got a hold of him, picked him, took him up into heaven, taught him his, you know, tricks, and sent him back down to earth, and they use this verse to come up with such a fanciful story. It's clearly not what the Bible teaches anywhere else, but the idea of nobody has ascended, what he's saying is there isn't anybody you know that's been up to heaven. Nobody from this earth has been able to ascend into heaven and then come back and tell you what it's about. I came from heaven. I know what it's about. You've got to take my word for it. See, what happens in heaven now later after this, Paul was taken up into the, the third heaven. Uh, he, sa- he tells us in 2 Corinthians, the first heaven being our atmosphere, the second heaven being outer space and, and the solar system and, the other, uh, and all the other um, you know, stars and everything that is there to outer space materially. And then the third, the third heaven would be the presence of God. But Paul, when he talked about going there, he said, it's impossible to describe. Words can't tell you. It would be a crime if I told you what it was like. And so Jesus is kind of basically saying the same thing to Nicodemus. Look, nobody's gone up there and come back and is able to explain it. Now, this is kind of weird, though, because he says, the Son of Man who is in heaven. The Son of Man was a term in the Old Testament used for the Messiah. Messiah would be a man. It doesn't mean that he's not God. It means that God became a man. And so he refers to himself by this title quite a bit. But he's saying, I'm the only one that's been there. I'm the only one that really knows what's going on. But he says, and I'm there right now. That's, that's a problem. Now, there are people who, uh, several commentators have suggested that Jesus was here as a man while his divine nature was up in heaven. And so he's saying, my divine nature is in heaven and that that's what he's talking about. But the Bible certainly doesn't teach that. You can't divide Jesus, his, his divine and human nature. He's fully God and fully man. So he wasn't a split personality. He wasn't like functioning in the matrix while the real him was wired up somewhere and, and doing this thinking. That's not what he's saying. There are some people who would suggest, and this is a possibility, that Jesus is speaking prophetically because as he goes on to talk about the fact that God gave his only begotten son, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man would be lifted up, he's talking about the future. And so perhaps by saying the son of man is in heaven, he's speaking in the future. Another possibility is that he is saying that, that uh, 
be, even though he gave up the use of his omnipresence, yet there's a sense in which he is everywhere. And so he may be referring to his omnipresence in that we don't understand how the fact that God is omnipresent, Jesus is God, therefore Jesus is omnipresent, how does that fit with the fact that he resided in a human body? So there may be a mystical way in which he was still omnipresent, even though he was there in the flesh, yet he was still everywhere. Another possibility is that, um, and I hope I'm not giving you more than you care about, but another possibility that I think is, is pretty plausible, at least to some degree, when we go to heaven, when we're in the presence of God, we're passing from time into eternity. That is, God lives in the eternal present. There's no past, present, and future to God. He created this world, and this world has this aspect called time. Time didn't exist until it was created, and physicists all agree, and, or most of them agree today, and tell us that time has a physical property to it. Can you understand that? Probably not. But the thing is, God, well, it says that Jesus was sacrificed before the foundation of the earth. How could that have happened? You get into eternity, and it's all happening now. How could it be true that, that God knows whether we're going to accept Him or not, and on that foreknowledge, therefore, He chose us before the foundation of the world? Because outside of time and space, God is able to see all and to know all. And so it could be that at the same time Jesus was here on the earth in time, He was also in heaven outside of time. Now, this presents some interesting possibilities when it comes to our eternal state, when it comes to the resurrection. Could it be that when we leave this existence and pass into eternity, could it be that when, if I were to die tonight, that I would go to heaven and you guys would be there too? We'd all get there at the same time from an earthly standpoint? It's possible. I don't, you know, the Bible doesn't say this clearly, but if you think about it, if we're passing into eternity, then we're not going to get there and wait. We're not going to get there and pass the time. We could be in, the, in a different dimension, really, that exists outside the three dimensions of which we know, and we may be passing right into that dimension. Moses and Elijah came back from after death to appear on the Mount of Transfiguration in some sort of mystical way, just appeared, disappeared. It could be that heaven is right here in a way. It's just in a different dimension outside the realm of space. It's, you start thinking about it too much, it'll give you a headache, though. At any rate, it could just be the simplest, you know, least goofy explanation is that Jesus, in the same way that he says, our citizenship is in heaven over in, in Philippians, then in the same way, he's just saying, that's where I really belong. That's my home. I'm really there. So, uh, you know, it could be as simple as I left my heart in San Francisco. But <laughs> there are all sorts of other theories about it too. So he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You remember that story? The plague came to the children of Israel because of disobedience. And, and Moses made a brass serpent, put it on a pole, and stuck it up and said, if you look at the serpent, you'll be healed. You'll be able to live. And a lot of people didn't look, and they died. 
But it was simple as just looking, but they didn't even have the will to go to the door of their tent and look at it. Now later, the children of Israel made it into an idol, and we just studied a couple of weeks ago where Hezekiah actually ground the thing up and got rid of it because they had made it into an icon. But Jesus is saying, in the same way that the children of Israel had to look at the serpent in order to be healed, so I'm going to be lifted up on a pole as well. He's speaking of his death. And when I'm lifted up, then people just have to look to me and they'll be saved. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus in another place said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It wasn't, it wasn't referring to him being held up on a pedestal. It was a reference to him being nailed to a cross. <clears throat> and so then he says, uh, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. <clears throat> For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Now he's getting right down to the gospel. As simple as it could be, John 3:16, little kids can comprehend it to some degree. We, many of us memorized it when we were kids. The idea that here's the thing. God loves the world. The world was condemned. It was in a state of being completely lost. And yet, God gave his son. He loved the world so much, he gave his only begotten son. We've talked about that idea of him being the begotten son before. It doesn't mean God gave birth to the son. It means he's connected to him in a unique way. If it meant that God created him, then he couldn't be the only begotten son. He was in the bosom of the Father, it says. And, and so he just has that intimate connection. But God gave his only begotten son that by just believing in him, you wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. You'd live forever. Now, there are people who look at these verses and say, well, what do you mean perish? And, and you could take these verses and say, hey, it looks like if you don't accept Jesus Christ, someday you're just going to perish. And perishing doesn't sound that bad. I mean, so people take verses like this and say, I don't believe that if somebody goes to hell, they're going to burn and suffer forever. They'll maybe suffer for a period of time, and God will graciously destroy them. God will graciously take them out. Now, people debate this a lot. Is, is eternal punishment eternal, or is it just bad and it's over? And these verses like this make, if this was the only verse we had, we could easily believe that they're going to perish. And I'd love to believe that suffering isn't eternal, that hell isn't eternal. I'd like to believe it, but there are too many scriptures that refer to the fact that it goes on and on forever and ever, where the worm dieth not. Um, over in Revelation, it makes it very clear of that. About If you look at all the verses that refer to hell, about two-thirds of them make it very clear that it goes on and on. And about a third of them, in one way or another, sound like they're talking about, um, you know, being burnt up, you know, being uh, perishing or having your existence uh, stop at some point. Um, but I, I think that those terms are just used metaphorically, that you're perishing in that you're away from the presence of God. 
I believe that our spirits live forever. Now, I could be wrong on that. There are some good people, frankly, who believe in what they call annihilation, that at some point down the road, God will take the people who are in hell and put them out of their misery. Boy, there are some scriptures, though, that just sound very clearly like that's not the case. And so whatever God does is going to be just. When we see what he does, we're going to go, that was a great plan. But I don't know. I haven't been there yet. All I know is I don't want to ever be out of fellowship with God and out of his presence, regardless of what happens. And, but I don't think that this here referring to perishing would refer to annihilation, but there are some people who do. God didn't send his son to condemn the world. This isn't something that God did. This is something that we did. We messed the world up. God created the world in a, in a perfect state, and he made only one rule, and that rule was don't eat of that tree. And that's what people did. And we've had the tendency ever since to want to do the things that kill us, to want to do the things that destroy us. We have a self-destructive bent that we inherited from our father Adam. And so when Jesus came here, he didn't come to tell people they were guilty. We were already guilty. We had a guilty look on us long before Jesus came. We realized we can't do this on our own. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And that mandate is ours as well. God hasn't sent us into the world to condemn people. That's not his job. It's already done. We don't need to argue with people about how bad they are, about how much they've failed. Deep down inside, they know they're not cutting it. Deep down inside, there's something that's missing within them. Our opportunity is to present the truth to them in a way that they realize how good God is and what he's done for them. He offers this fresh start, this new birth. He came that people would be saved. And he who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is already condemned. So if you believe in him, there's no condemnation. If you don't believe in him, you've already been condemned because you haven't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He said, here's the evidence. People like darkness. They don't want someone looking at what they're doing. Everyone has a guilty conscience about something that they're doing in their lives. And they have a tendency toward darkness. Now, this doesn't just mean that they always want the lights turned low, although I think it's interesting that so many of the evil things that people do, they like to do in the dark. They like to have some privacy in order to do it. You don't generally see a bar and go in there and it's all lit up really bright and cheery. They like it to be dark. People like to maintain an anonymity. They don't want people to know how much they're drinking or what they're doing or they're concerned about someone seeing them that might not approve of them being there. It's one of the things that I always got a kick out of. As a, as a police chaplain, there are different times when I was down patrolling at the beach, and I'd walk through with a police officer, um, walk through the bars down there in Newport Beach, down by, the, down by Blackie's. And it's really funny when you're walking in a bar and you see somebody from your church, and, and they just, they get this look on their face, and then they try to look away a little bit, and they're... You know, it really makes it worse when you come up and, hey, and introduce them to the police officer. And, yeah, they go to my church. And it's like, oh. 
You know, it's just, it's why we dim the lights on things that we know we shouldn't be doing anyway. And so Jesus is saying here, here's the deal. You're walking in darkness. You're walking around with your eyes closed. There isn't that light. There isn't that joy that, that you could have that, that I came to provide for you. And men tend to love darkness because they're doing the wrong things. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. And does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. That is, the light of the Lord shining on our lives, it's a good indication. How do we respond when he shines the light on our lives? That is, how do we respond when he convicts us of something that we're doing wrong? Do we go, turn that light off? I don't want that to happen. When I'm watching TV or something and the room's dark, I hate it when there's another light on that's bothering you. Well, some people are that way when the Bible addresses an issue that they need to deal with in their lives. I don't know about you, but I can hardly pick this book up without being convicted of something. I I open it anywhere and I see something that goes, Dave, you're blowing it here. You're not right here. It's talking about you, the attitude that you have. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond when, you know, it's funny, sometimes people will be at church and I'll just be talking from the Word and I don't even know them, but they get upset and sometimes they'll call me or come up afterwards and and they think that someone told me about what they were doing in their life, that it was all a setup because it was so to the point of what they were going through in their lives. And really, I never do that. I I wouldn't even think of addressing a particular person and going, okay, I see Don out there. I'm just going to run him through right now. I know what he needs. And, and no, you don't do that. It's just the word. It's the light. You shine the light. Now, if you get bugged because somebody is addressing something that you happen to have an issue with, fine, stay in the darkness. If there's something that God convicts you about as we're going through the word and it comes up and it bothers you, you can either get offended, you can get mad at me, you can get mad at God or the word, you can try, you know, you can say, I'm going to go to another church where they don't, you know, say things that are offensive. Or you can go, wow, God, you're so good. You're shining the light on exactly what I need to hear right now. And that's the difference between someone who's a child of God and someone who isn't, frankly. If you, if you have that new birth, if he's given you that fresh start, you realize the only way that I'm surviving is because God keeps shining a light in my life. Once we get to the point where we don't want that light anymore, we're in a precarious position. We're becoming more like a Pharisee than like a Christian. We need to say, God, go ahead. Take your best shot because that's what's saving us. Now, if you have a disease in your body, there are some of us who really, in some ways, would rather not know. There are people who start developing a condition and usually often they're men And the wife is saying, you ought to have a doctor look at that. You ought to get checked on that. And you just feel like, no, I don't want to. And we can sometimes get stubborn, even though inside it might be bugging us, and we might be worried about it. We're just afraid to face what might be the case. Now, invariably, it's paranoia. You go to the doctor, and you find out there's nothing wrong. But there's still that feeling of, I hate to even do this because I don't want to know. And yet the sensible thing is, hey, if there's something wrong with me, I want to know. 
If I have some kind of a tumor inside me or something, I want it cut out. And that's the difference between what God would have us to be and what we sometimes develop in our own lives. Look, you're killing yourself. Do you understand that? There are things that are going on inside your life right now that are destroying you. They're making you miserable. They're robbing you of your peace and your joy. They're taking years off your life, and it's called sin. And when we go against what God tells us to do, it destroys us. And Dr. Jesus is saying, let me check it out. Let me do an MRI. Let me look and see what's actually going on there. And it'll be a good thing, because if you find something, you take it out, it'll add years to your life. It'll add joy and fulfillment to your existence. And so, as children of God, we should be going, yeah, go ahead, shine the light on me. Do the full body scan. Do whatever you need to do in order to call attention to anything in my life that's messing me up. Because the truth is, with each of us, there's something that's doing that. And I would venture to say, I think this is probably true, that within each of us right now, there's probably one big thing that's just blocking us spiritually, that's just holding us back, one area. Now, you may go, not for me. Okay, fine. Your area may be denial. But, <laughs> but I, I have always found that when I go and spend time with the Lord, He will invariably just show me at this point, here's the deal about you. It may be a lack of forgiveness. It may be a lack of love. It may be some kind of a bitterness. It may be an arrogance or a pride. It may be a lack of discipline. Whatever it is, I'm convinced that for most of us, there's like a built-in cue that functions in our body and things rise to the top and God goes, okay, this is the main thing for you now. It's time for us to work on this. But if we refuse to work on that, to me, it just jams up the whole mess, like beavers building dams and making the water just flood and not be able to get where they were going. Did you see on the news the other day, um, some guys robbed a bank, or a, I think it was a bank, because they got $75,000, and about 40000 of it they tossed off the road into a creek. And some beavers found the money, $40,000 in cash, and built a dam out of it. Somebody found this dam. They didn't even tear the dollar bills. They wove them neatly together and, and dammed up the, the stream. And when somebody was going to look at why the water wasn't flowing, they found this cash and dried it out, and it was actually okay. But it's usually, and you know what? Your dam may be money. Pardon the, pardon the expression. Money may be damning you or me, but it could be a lot of other things too. The remedy is the light. And if I say to you right now, if there's one thing in your life that you really need to offer to the Lord and shine His light on it, what is it? There are some of you that instantly you know what I'm talking about because God's been speaking to you. There are some of you who have been really struggling with that particular issue. And if so, good for you. That's awesome. That's shining the light. But there are some of you that can't think of anything. You're the ones I'm worried about because chances are you're just going, God, keep the light out of the way. Don't shine it on my life. Don't convict me. It's too uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. I mean, going and getting tests from the doctor is very uncomfortable. You men over 40 know what I mean when you go for a physical. It's not pleasant. 
but it beats colon cancer. I mean, at some point, we just have to decide, is the cure worse than the disease? Well, when it comes to God, it's not. It's something that, you know, the Lord says, let me shine my light on you, and I can fix you. That's what I came to do, to save you. And so, the one who does the truth comes to the light, shows up at the doctor's office, and says, okay, check me out. Is there anything here that's not right? So his deeds can be clearly seen. And when you see it, you see what God is doing. Wow. I don't see how we're going to get through chapter 4. Oh, well. Now we come into this encounter with John the Baptist and his disciples. We, we went over this to a certain degree on Sunday morning. I kind of told the story, and, and we focused in on verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. But we'll go through it quickly. Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea down there in the south of Israel, remained, he remained with them and baptized. John also was baptizing right near there. There was a lot of water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, and John hadn't yet been thrown in prison. And there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. John's guys were arguing with the Jewish leaders, and they came to John just to make him mad and said, hey, the guy that was with you over on the other side of the Jordan, you, you testified of him? He's baptizing, and all are coming to him, basically saying, you're a has-been, John. Jesus has taken over your territory, man. He's moving in, trying to create a rivalry. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He's going, look, I, I'm not the Christ. I've told you that. He is. I've told you that. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's the guy. It's his party. The friend of the bridegroom, the best man who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He says, I'm just glad to see what Jesus is doing. Now, there's, a, there's an important lesson for us to remember from this as well. John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he realizes he's not in competition with him. They're working together. He was the forerunner to Jesus, and yet here he is. He's still testifying of Jesus. But for us, we aren't in John the Baptist's role. But how do we respond when we see God blessing someone else? How do we respond when it seems like there are people who would stir up rivalries between us, telling us that, oh, that person is doing this, and this place is doing that, and this church has this going on, and you do this, and this isn't the way it used to be, and this isn't the way it ought to be, and, and stirring up these little rivalries. And the truth should be, you know what? I'm just glad that God is working. I'm happy to hear His voice. I'm not in competition with anyone else. We're all on the same team. We're all working together for the unity of the faith. That is the testimony that the world needs to see, and it's not seen very much. Because there's such division and party spirit among the body of Christ, we're worrying that somebody else might be baptizing more than we are, or that they might be baptizing different than we are. Oh, they baptize infants, and we don't do that. Or they baptize by sprinkling. We do it by immersion. There are people, churches have been divided over whether when you baptize people, you should baptize them backwards or frontwards. Or some people would say baptize them three times, Father, splash, Son, splash, Holy Spirit, splash. 
Then there are some who say, because the Bible talks about baptizing in the name of Jesus, that if you don't baptize them in the name of Jesus, it doesn't count. There are others who take the formula from Acts and say, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Pastor Chuck says, I baptize you in the name of Jesus and in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit just to cover all the bases. To me, the Son is Jesus and I don't worry about it. But the body of Christ gets so divided and we are not here to scrutinize each other and we're not here to pick apart what other people are doing. We're not here to compete and to be the best, to be on top, to be better than others. We need to realize as John did, look, I'm just glad God's working. Over in the book of Philippians, Paul talked about people who were preaching the gospel for all the wrong reasons. Sounds like Christian television, frankly, to me. That may be an unfair statement. But there are people who definitely seem to be preaching the gospel, and they're doing it in order to make money, or in order to promote themselves, or in order to build a large facility, or in order to put other people down. There are all sorts of motives that aren't worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul in Philippians said, you know, yeah, I know that's going on. But he said, I'm just glad that the gospel's preached. And because of that, I'm going to rejoice. I'll continue to rejoice. They could be way off. But if the gospel's there, great, more power to them. I'm thankful for people who, even though I think they're goofy. And I, I mean, frankly, I look at some of these, uh, you know, TV personalities and I look, and you have to kind of wonder about them. And I, you know, there's one that has an office real close to here. And I watch, and I go, wow, that's kind of weird and spooky and strange and laughable and all those sorts of things. But, you know, there are people that get saved under that guy's ministry. And my attitude should be, I just praise the Lord that somehow God can get the gospel out, even clothed in this weird sort of thing. Like, I should criticize the way people dress, you know? It's just, no, this is, God gets his word out, and that's the thing. And that's what John is saying about Jesus here, and, and it's a good lesson for us to learn as well, because God does work in different ways. I remember one time, first time I ever spoke at Calvary Costa Mesa back in, you know, I don't know, 1980 or something, sp speaking for Pastor Chuck, and after church, people line up and, oh, that was great, that was great. But there was this one little guy that looked like he was really off, and he spoke like a computer simulator. Hello, how are you doing? But he came up to me and he said, so, you're a pastor. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a pastor. And he goes, the Lord works in strange ways. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> But he works, and that's the point. And so, he must increase, I must decrease. I've got to show people who he is. And that means that I kind of get out of the way, that it's not about me. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. It sounds like John had just heard Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Um, it's interesting because so much of it connects, and that's why John probably put this story about John the Baptist in the same chapter with the story on Nicodemus. Jesus maybe was sharing this message with a lot of people, but boy, he just lays it out so clear. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. 
He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. If you've received it, you've figured it out. It's the truth. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. So the one that God sent speaks the words of God, and he has the Holy Spirit completely, without measure. Now, during the, the Old Testament time, and even during the Gospels, the Holy Spirit would kind of come and go. We see the Holy Spirit coming upon Saul at different times, and then other times Saul was possessed by demons. We see the Holy Spirit coming upon David, upon Samuel, different people throughout the Old Testament. The great thing about the church age today that started with the day of Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit came on people and stayed. Jesus actually had breathed on his, holy, on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And today, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit inside you all the time. If anyone doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he doesn't belong to God. And so the idea here is though Jesus was the first one who completely had the Holy Spirit, that always walked in the Spirit, that never deviated, but he set the, the way for us to be able to do it too. And so he doesn't give the Holy Spirit by measure the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John the Baptist describing the relationship between God the Father and the Son. And he says He loves Him and He's given everything into His hand. He is God. An interesting piece of trivia, this verse. You've heard people do the little talk about the different words for love in the Greek. There's eros, which is a lustful sort of word that sometimes is translated love, but never in, the, never in the New Testament. But you have the two main words, agape or agapao, and phileo. And you'll hear preachers say that agape is a higher form of love. It's the higher sacrificial kind of love, and, and that phileo is more like a casual friendship. And so the story there in the gospel of, in the end of the gospel of John, where Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And he says, yeah, I phileo you. And they went through that whole thing. It makes for some great sermon material. However, it's not that simple. Now, there is a difference between the two words, and when they're used together as there in the end of John, it makes sense. But this is an example of, well, if, if anyone can tell me what is a higher love than the Father's love for the Son, I'd like to know about it. But interestingly, the Greek word here is phileo. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. How could it be higher love than that? So just something, to, just something to rattle your cage a little bit when you think you're understanding Greek. By the way, it also, when it says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil in the same chapter here, guess what? Men love darkness, agape. So figure that out. Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God stays or abides on him. The bottom line of this chapter, of the truth of this thing, is that apart from the new birth, we're sunk. We're through. We're toast. It's just not happening for us. Our life is a mess. Our life will lead to destruction. It's, we're damaged goods and there's no hope for us. But becoming new in Christ, getting a fresh start with Him, asking Him to forgive us and to save us, stepping into the light, stepping into that place of accepting His forgiveness, walking with Him, 
the result is eternal life, is a life that not only goes on and on forever, though that is the truth, but it's a life that is so deep and broad. It's a life that's so rich and fulfilling, a life that promises a peace that passes understanding, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's the life that comes by the new birth. And so the question for each of us, and I'm not going to go into chapter 4 because there's just no way. <laughs> the story of the woman at the well will take some time probably. Um, but for each of us, what's our life look like? Jesus is here saying clearly, hey, there's two kinds of life. One life looks like this. One life looks like that. What does your life look like? Are you submitting yourself to the light? Are you showing the kind of fullness and unity and joy and satisfaction that comes from a life with God? Or does your life look an awful lot like the life of somebody who doesn't even know God at all? If you say that you've received the new birth, if you're saying I'm a born-again Christian, then you ought to look like something's changed. You should see the signs in your life of, of His work, just doing a miraculous transformation in your life. And again, it's not condemnation. See, the focus is never on your sin. God doesn't shine the light in order for the sin to be prominent. He shines the light in order for you to see what you can be and what you can experience. God's message is a positive one. Whoever doesn't believe is condemned already. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save them. The byproduct of his blessing is he removes that sin. And I'm glad he does. He's getting the stuff out of the way so that he can do what he wants to do in our lives. But the emphasis is not on him coming into our life and making us stop this and this and this and this. That's not the deal. He wants to give us a full, rich life. And in order to do that, he, he graciously and gloriously places his Holy Spirit within us. And he makes himself at home with us. And he begins to change us. And not primarily. I mean, when I look back at when I first became a Christian, I tend to focus on the things I stopped doing. But I never really tried to stop doing most of them. It wasn't a question of, okay, I mean, I accepted the Lord, 18 years old. God didn't give me a list and say, you need to stop breaking into houses. You need to stop stealing cars. You need to stop cussing. You need to stop drinking. You need to stop doing drugs. You need to stop being a jerk to everyone you know. He didn't do that. But that stuff gradually, and you may say, hey, sounds like he's still working on some of it, but <laughs> I really haven't stolen a car in a long time. But... But that stuff gradually just got crowded out when the light got shined in. See, the part that I don't talk about and that I don't focus on is all of a sudden, this book, I loved it. In a different way, it was a love letter from God. Oh, I had studied this book. I had memorized this book. I was into theology, but now I knew the author of the book personally. I also loved fellowship. I loved being around other Christians. I loved sharing what God was doing. I even liked reaching out to people who were hurting and trying to offer them some sort of comfort. And so as God began, he, he perked me up all my life. 
I was a person that looked miserable. When I was two and three years old, I remember my mom said that one of, the, one of our pastors was over at our house and commented, looking at me as a toddler walking around the house, um, he said, Dave, David looks like he has the weight of the world on his shoulders. And that was just me. I wasn't, oh, I could make people laugh, but I didn't have fun. I was just, I was giving other people fun, but I was miserable. But I didn't try to stop being miserable. It's just God gave me a joy. Now, you say, Dave, sometimes you still look like you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. Yeah, I, I still take it back. You know, funny thing is, now the weight of the world isn't what's going on in my home. Things are great at home. It's things in the church and things in, and again, I can fall back into that old man, that flesh, where I decide that I'll carry it. The burdens of the church, yeah, dump it on me. Burdens of everybody else's church, yeah, dump it on me. Everybody I know, every problem they have, every, yeah, sure, I'll take it, I'll take it. And when that happens, I start looking like the old man. I start looking like what I looked before I was a Christian. But God didn't come in and try to just take away a bunch of stuff. In fact, he didn't even do that. It's like when you were a kid and you had a great Christmas and you got all these presents. You started dumping the old stuff. And it wasn't nobody said you had to. It's like, hey, I've got to have room for this. So sorry, the old stuff is gone. I need to create a space for the new stuff. And that's what God wants to do. That's what the new birth really is, is that he begins to add so much to our lives that the other stuff just doesn't fit. It really just... You know, sitting there reading the Bible or worshiping God while you're smoking a joint, it just doesn't work. It really doesn't. Or going, you know what sounds really, you know, used to be as a non-Christian, man, let's get loaded, get totally wasted and then go to the Lazarium show and, and trip out on the Pink Floyd music with the lights flying. Do you ever go, you know what, it sounds really good, let's get loaded and then go to church. This should be good. You know, no, it just, it doesn't fit. It's silly. It's, it's inappropriate. It's just, it's the old stuff. And so what God wants to do is give us enough new stuff. The old stuff just falls along the wayside. It happens just very naturally, unless we hang on to it. There are some people who won't let go of the very things that are destroying them. There are some people who prefer margarine to butter or cream corn to corn on the cob. You'd rather have, or, you know, orange punch to orange juice. But, you know, God goes, man, I have something better here. It's the real thing. And if you want to keep drinking your Kool-Aid, fine. But, man, look at this fresh-squeezed orange juice I've got for you. Oh, I don't know. I'm so used to McDonald's orange punch. I just kind of prefer it. Okay, you can do that. But in our new life, God has something for us. And by the way, a lot of kids might prefer punch, and that's fine for kids. At some point, grow up and realize there's better stuff out there, like water, for instance. But in the new birth, he goes, I'm just going to lay all of these blessings on you. The changes will happen. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. It's a, it's a gift from God. It comes by his grace. And if we don't fight against him, then he just remakes us. It's what he does. And we're blessed that he does. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and your truth. God, I thank you personally that I was born again, that you gave me a fresh start, that you opened my eyes spiritually, 
that you continue to open them. And Lord, we all who know you are grateful for that, but we also want to make sure that we continue to come to the light, that we continue to allow you to keep doing that work, not to condemn us and convict us, but to shine a light into our lives, giving us the fruit of the Spirit that we couldn't possibly do on our own. So, Lord, we thank you. We're so grateful to you. We love you. We thank you for your word and the parts of it that you shared with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.